Last week we looked at Christmas. We're going to do that again today. Some of the after Christmas events, I guess we would say. We're looking at the Magi, a message from the Magi. I'm going to ask you to turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. If you know the Christmas story, it's found in Matthew 1 and 2 and in Luke 2. Different aspects, as I mentioned last week, Luke 2 focuses on Mary and it gives her lineage all the way back to David. And Matthew 1 and 2 focus on Joseph and the other two hardly mention the others. Matthew chapter 2 is where we find ourselves on the message of the Magi. The late actress Helen Hayes talked about cooking her first turkey for Thanksgiving. She had well established her reputation with her family as being a terrible cook. Nobody wanted to eat at their house when she was doing the cooking. But after several years of marriage, she decided it was time for her to do a turkey on her own. So she called her husband in and her son in and sat them down at the table before the meal. And she said this to him. She said, this may not come out exactly the way any of us want it. So if it's not a good turkey, don't laugh, don't ridicule me, don't even say anything. Just back away from the table and we'll end up going to a restaurant again this year. A few, a few minutes later, she walked into the dining room with the turkey and her husband and son were sitting at the table with their coat and gloves on. Our expectation, I should say, influences our conduct. We all have expectations which influence our conduct. Probably all of us have had expectations about Christmas that didn't line up with reality. We understand that. No doubt the Magi who visited Jesus had very different expectations. I'm tying it in here. The Magi had very different expectations than what they found. They were coming looking for the king of the Jews, they said. And they found a baby, and he wasn't in a palace. At this time, he was in a house, probably a very humble abode where they had rented a room. So let's make some observations about the story of the Magi, but first we must read it. And I'll invite you to stand here this morning one more time if you're able. I know we stood for a while singing, but we will read Matthew chapter 2, 1 through 12. Matthew chapter 2, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. So they came to Jerusalem where Herod lived, of course. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. He was jealous, and all Jerusalem with him. When the king, especially King Herod, got upset, everybody got upset. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ, the Messiah, was to be born. So they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, they knew exactly where he was going to be born, of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least amongst the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star began to appear. Now, we're not told, did the star appear at 
Jesus' conception in Mary's womb? Or did the star appear after he was born? We're not told that. But the star appeared and then led them out of the east to Jerusalem, actually to Bethlehem. And he sent to Bethlehem and said, Go, search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. Of course, we know that was a lie. When they heard the king, they departed. Behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. And let me insert, it appears that the star led them all the way from Persia across the Fertile Crescent all the way, and it was leading them to Bethlehem, but they knew the Jewish kings ruled from Jerusalem. They quit following God's provided light God's revelation, and they started relying upon their own reasoning. And they said, well, kings rule from Jerusalem. The king of the Jews has got to be here in Jerusalem. And they stopped following the revelation, which costs lives and real trouble. But it says, after they, they left Jerusalem, the star again appeared. So it, is, it was like the star appeared. Once they got on their own, the star disappeared. And once they started following the revelation, which they got from the scribes and the high priest, the star reappears. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. So the star reappears. Verse 11, and when they had come into the house, now it is no longer the manger scene. It's no longer the grotto. It's no longer the, the scene that we often think of at Jesus's birth. They came into the house where the young child was with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshiped him. And when they opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then, being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. They didn't know Herod's intentions, so God reveals at least enough to them that they would not go back and tell him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your revelation. And even those that were dwelling in darkness saw a great light. And we are thankful that we have a completed revelation. We have scriptures that are divinely inspired, breathed into by God. And they point the way to Christ. We know from Genesis to Revelation, it is really a book about worshiping our Savior and pointing us to him. And so we thank you for the truth that we have, and may we continue to study it here in the upcoming year, 2021, and learn it better, but really learn to know you better, because you are not only the author, you are the subject of this book. We thank you for this time of the year where we can reflect upon the incarnation, your coming into our world and humbling yourself ultimately to die on the cross and purchase our salvation. So we rejoice in the great truth. So help us today. We know that life is short. and We handle it with prayer as well as care. And we ask that you'll speak to us from your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. A message from the Magi of three thoughts I'm going to share with you, three observations really. The first one is joy comes from discovering Christ. Joy, real joy, true joy comes from discovering 
Christ. The search of the Magi brought them genuine happiness. You realize that? The Bible tells us that, that they rejoice. That's kind of our word today that we use, great happiness, great joy. Their search brought them real happiness. They were called Magi, partly from our word magician, because in the ancient world, sometimes magic and knowledge and some of that kind of crossed over. Sometimes we talk of them as kings. We don't really know that they were kings. We know that they were magi, magicians in in one technical sense of the word because they had knowledge, but they were astrologers. They studied the star. That's how they knew. That's how they recognized the star that appeared in the east. They were astrologers. We think of astrology as something, you know, out of bounds for a Christian. They were astronomers, astrologers. They certainly observed the heavens. Maybe we would say they were observant pagans. They observed the heavens, but probably more than that, they probably also observed not just the stars, but the scriptures, because all indications are that they had some fragment, some remnant of the scriptures. Remember, Daniel the great prophet who dealt with prophecy, uh, it's called the cornerstone of all prophecy, laid the foundation for the book of Revelation and the New Testament book. Daniel talks about the Messiah. He talks even when the Messiah would come and then when he would be cut off. He talks about when the Messiah would arrive in Jerusalem or arrive in Judaism and how long he would live and then he would be cut off. So they had probably the very fragments of Scripture, maybe not the whole Old Testament, but parts of the Scripture that Daniel had written and it had been copied, and maybe they were anticipating this. Maybe they were waiting. The star comes, and they realize this is the fulfillment. So stop and think about them. They were wealthy. No one could afford this trip without a significant amount of wealth. They had a retinue of travelers with them to help protect them. So they were wealthy. They were, in their day, certainly scholarly, wealthy, scholarly, and they had to have a bit of adventuresome spirit. Nobody takes a thousand-plus-mile trip on the back of a camel without having some a sense of adventure. So here they are. They're wealthy, scholarly, adventuresome, but they're still searching. They didn't have the truth. They had all these things going for them. We'd say, hey, from a worldly perspective, wealth and, and a respected degrees or the equivalent of that and an adventuresome spirit, they had it all. But they knew they didn't have it all. They were still searching for the truth. We could call them true seekers. They truly were seekers. And the, the Bible tells us they present three gifts to Christ or to Christ and his parents That's why we tend to think that there were three of the wise men, three of the magi, and their arrival caused quite a stir. In Jerusalem, Herod said, there's another king? Wait a minute, somebody got to try and take my power. Remember, this is the Herod that killed so many of his own family members because he was so insecure, so jealous, and and really so insane that he killed so many of his family members. The old saying was, it's better to be Herod's pig than Herod's son, because he killed all of his sons, because he was intemperate for sure. It caused quite a stir, and he causes the Pharisees and the scribes, the ones that knew the Old Testament prophecies together, and says, where is this Christ going to be born? They instantly tell him, Bethlehem, they knew. 
Why Bethlehem? It's mentioned in verse 8, in Bethlehem. If you recall from Ruth, the book of Ruth in the Old Testament, they left Bethlehem and went to Moab. Elimelech and his wife Naomi, they left Bethlehem and went to Moab and there they found wives for their two sons. Their two sons die and then her husband dies and Naomi and Ruth come back to Bethlehem. Bethlehem means house of bread. House of bread. Where else would the bread of life come from but the house of bread? And he's called the bread of life in John chapter 6, verse 48. So the bread of life comes out of the house of bread in Bethlehem. Get the story here. There's three, three different groups that I'll draw your attention to very quickly. The Magi, they're seeking Christ. Herod, he's opposing Christ. And the Pharisees, and the scribes, they're ignoring Christ. That's probably a snapshot of our world today. There are people that are seeking Christ. God is drawing them. They're responding to the truth. They're seeking Christ. There's others. They're opposing Christ, not just in churches, but really in the marketplace and, and in their own lives. And there are those that are just ignoring Christ. It's no big deal. doesn't mean anything to us. Kind of a snapshot of people today. So there's a search their search brought happiness, the saint and happiness. Let me digress for just a moment and talk about that. Let's look at Psalm 126. Would you turn there with me? This is just one passage of others that we can look at that deals with happiness. This is one of the Song of Ascents. You might have that title in your Bible, which is the songs that the Jews sang on their way to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was up, so they're called Song of Ascents as they were going up to Jerusalem all the way from Nazareth or wherever they might have lived in Galilee. They would sing the songs of ascent. And this is a, a song that was composed about being released from Babylon. When the Lord brought back the captivity of Zion, they had been in Babylon for 70 years, paying God back for the years that they didn't allow the land to lie fallow and to rest. When God brought us back in the captivity to Zion, we were like those who dream. This is a dream come true. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue was singing. Then they said amongst the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. So the nations were saying, along with Israel, along with the Zionists, God has been good to you. God has done great things for you. What people goes into captivity and doesn't lose their identity? You've kept your identity. He's brought you back into the land. Who does that? Only God. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad. Bring back our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. Those who sow in tears, they're reminding themselves of the mournful years of captivity, and they're weeping over their sin and where they were. Those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. And, of course, we apply that to taking the word of God or maybe even our prayers as we pray for those who are lost or those who are away from the Lord. Those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. He who continually goes forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. So the saint and happiness. This describes the Lord restoring the Israelites back to Zion. 
And God wants us to rejoice. God wants us, as they say here, to sing in happiness and to live with joy. Joy and happiness, thankfulness is a tremendous testimony to the heathen, to unbelievers, that when we go through trials or not, that we're praising the Lord, we're singing his greatness, we have a smile on our face, we have a, a little bit of a skip in our step, maybe we would say. I sometimes wonder if Christians really get that. Some Christians never smile. They can't abide a joke, even my best jokes. They can't abide a joke. A woman kept looking in the grocery line at a fairly well-dressed man that had kind of a dour look on his face. And her curiosity got the best of her. And she said, are you by chance a minister? And he said, oh, no, no, I've just been sick. I've just been sick and feeling poorly. I hope that's not a reflection on people in the ministry. Uh, we shouldn't be dour. Of all people, we should be the happiest. We've got eternity settled. Regardless of our losses, regardless of our problems, we know God is in control and he does all things well. We should be joyful. We should be happy. Some Christians look like they've been baptized in pickle juice. And they haven't. It's just water. Laughter relaxes the nervous system and cleanses us emotionally. It's good for us to laugh. Proverbs 15, 13 says, A merry heart makes a cheerful countenance, but by sorrow of the heart the spirit is broken. Proverbs 17, 22 says, A merry heart does good like a medicine. <clears throat> uh, scientists, medical experts are discovering that. One of the best things that we can do is laugh when we're sick. Philippians 4, 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Maybe the entertainment industry in the United States is so big and so pervasive because really there's little that people seem to laugh about and have joy about. And so the entertainment industry is trying to fill that void. There's so little biblical, guiltless, true joy it seems to have vanished from our culture it's like we need what the medieval kings did we hire court jesters we pay a cable fee or something we hire court jesters to make us forget about our troubles and our misery and God is saying with me there's fullness of joy there's joy here so at Christmas time is a time to celebrate it is a time of celebration where Christians reflect on and have great joy over the fact that the incarnation transpired and salvation is now available. It's a time of rejoicing and great happiness. Discovering Christ, the Magi realize, and the true meaning of Christmas brings great joy. Second, not only there's joy from discovering Christ, there's purpose that comes from worshiping Christ. You get what I'm saying? People find real purpose in life. Life takes on real meaning when we worship the Lord. That's why worship is so important. Worship is very important. Let me talk about the call to worship. Uh, obviously, worship comes from the phrase worth -ship. In other words, someone is worth our 
obedience, our service. Worship puts life into its proper perspective. You've heard me talk about this before. Worship allows us to put God, we, we see God who he is. We see ourselves as who we are. We're not in charge. We're not calling the shot. We see God as who he is. We see ourselves as who we are. And we understand uh, what is really important, what is really eternal. So worship puts everything into perspective. I, I say it's, it's, it's like a pyramid. When we put God at the top, everything else falls into its proper place. And worship is, is really taking the pressure that we get from the world and life and job and family and that pulls God down in priority in our life. And worship is putting God back at the top of the pile, back at the top of the pyramid. And everything else falls into its proper place. When God is in his place, everything else is right in the world. Whether that's our marriage or our family or our finances or our job or our health. When God is in his proper place, everything else is less important and takes on its proper place. Matter of fact, all of creation seems to worship God, but man, all of creation now, the Bible says the creation groans, waiting for the redemption of the world. It's doing its best to be worshiping the Lord, but it's waiting for that final redemption. When Adam sinned, not only did it affect mankind, the Bible says, it affected all of creation. That's why God recreates the world and the universe, because the angels corrupted, or Satan and the angels that followed him corrupted heaven, but mankind corrupted earth with his sin, but sin is all over. That's why the Bible says in Revelation 21, verse 1, and he creates a new heavens and a new earth because they've all been tainted by sin. So creation points to God. The forest pines, if you drive up in the mountain, all the forest pines are like fingers on praying hands pointing to God. The waves of the sea, as they lap against the shore, or whether they never make it to shore, they're like big applause, applauding God for the majestic creation that he has made them a part of. From the barnyard chicken to the eagle that flies overhead, when they gulp down their food or their water, they lift their heads in thankfulness to God. That is what God desires from us his worship, ascribing his worth properly. The great events of the Bible are all surrounded by worship. Let me give you just a few examples. Noah was spared from the flood along with his family, and he worshiped as soon as he got out of the ark. The Israelites were delivered from Egypt and Pharaoh's army, and they bowed down and worshiped on the other side of the Red Sea. David slew Goliath with simply a sling and a stone, and after the giant fell and he took his head off, he didn't want any resurrections taking place, he took his head off and he worshiped the Lord. Elijah calls down fire from heaven. It destroys Baalism in Israel, and they worship the Lord, the Israelites did. The Jews were delivered out of Babylon, as we read, came out of captivity and brought back to Jerusalem. What did they do? The first thing they built was the altar. The second thing was the temple. Even before the walls were built, they worshiped. The disciples observed Jesus' miracles and his teaching, especially his resurrection. And what did they do? They worshiped. You could really say the Bible 
is a worship manual. We discover Christ and we learn how to worship Christ. That is what he desires, is our worship. But there's a cost with worship. We'll understand that. The Magi, if they were living in Persia, which is what most biblical scholars would say because they had access to Daniel's writing, and that was the center of the universe, really. If they came across the Fertile Crescent, it was over a thousand miles, taking three, possibly even four months on Camelback. Baby Jesus now would have been anywhere between 40 days and just under two years. Remember Herod, trying to make sure he killed Jesus, killed all the children in the Bethlehem area. And Bethlehem was a small town. But he killed all the children in Bethlehem that were two years old and under. Mary and Joseph would remain in that area until they could offer the sacrifices. And Mary was past her, as the Bible calls it, her uncleanness. And they could offer the turtle dove. And that would take place after 40 days. So baby Jesus was somewhere between 40 days old and two years. Probably on the upper end, we would assume. And their family probably came with them because their family were all from the tribe and lineage that would register there in Bethlehem, the tribe of Judah and the house of David. So their family was there probably as well. So they probably parked there for a while. And remember, they didn't immediately go back to Nazareth. They were sent to Egypt until Herod died. And the gifts that were they were given. I mean, remember, this is a poor family. Only the poorest of the poor offered turtle doves, pigeons. If you were wealthier, you offered something more significant in the sacrifice. So this is a very poor family. So these gifts that they received, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, which were all very expensive, costly gifts, were able to finance their trip to Egypt and while they stayed down there until Herod came back. Herod died and they came back. This was costly for the Magi, uh, for them to take this kind of a journey and then offer these kinds of gifts. And they found Jesus, verse 11 says, in a house. We would assume that Mary and Joseph had been warned by God through the angel that they weren't going to be able to stay there after their temple duties were done, that they would be fleeing to Egypt because of Herod's anger and desire to kill baby Jesus. They were probably renting a room in a house. Verse 11 says they were now in a house. They didn't stay in the grotto. They didn't stay in the cow barn very long if that's where even Jesus was born. So, no doubt, the Magi were probably stunned. This is the first time as they followed the star and led them right to the house. They're thinking, king, palace, but not a humble abode like this, renting a room. They were probably surprised. And worship puts life into perspective. It doesn't necessarily answer all of our questions or solve all of our problems. They didn't have all of their questions answered. But their faith was manifest because they gave the gifts. They recognized that this baby was a king. The king that was prophesied in Scripture. The king that the star had led them to. And so by faith they worshipped the baby. Even though they had revelation... And even though we have revelation, it doesn't answer all of our questions. There is an element of faith that God wants Christians in every age to exercise. In spite of having a completed revelation, we have to trust the Lord 
Faith and trust are still essential in living the Christian life and worshiping the Lord. After a long and costly trip, the Magi, this, this probably took almost a year out of their life. They presented their gifts, and then took the trek back, back to Persia. So let me ask you, what does it cost you to worship the Lord? We get this, and we've all seen the bumper sticker, wise men still seek him. We can say, wise men still worship him, and worship costs us something. It costs all of us something. Remember when David had numbered the people towards the end of his life, King David, end of 2 Samuel, and God had told him, don't do that. David did it anyway. He numbered the people, and God says, now I'm going to send a plague on the people. And so God was killing off thousands of Israelites because of David's sin. By the way, leadership cost. Bad decisions cost people sometimes their lives. Ideas have consequences. Bad ideas have bad consequences. David begins numbering the people, and God starts killing the people with a plague. And David begs God. He says, I, I want to worship the Lord, and, and I want to ask him to, to apply mercy to my stupid decision. So he looks around for a place to worship the Lord, and he goes to Aruna, 2 Samuel 24, 24. And Aruna was, had his threshing floor, just a flat spot on a high place so the wind would drive the chaff away. And he's throwing his grain up in the air, and the chaff is being blown away in the wind. And David said, this is where I want to worship. The angel showed him where, and that's where we believe the temple is today where it was, now it's destroyed, but it will be rebuilt. And David said, I want to buy this from you, Aruna. And Aruna says, you're the king. My goodness, if you're going to worship the Lord and stop the plague, it's yours. I give it to you. I'll give you my ox. I'll give you the wood that you need to sacrifice them. And this is what David says in 2 Samuel 24, 24. Then the king said to Aruna, no, but I will surely buy it from you for a price. Nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which costs me nothing. David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. Do you get that? You may be here today singing the songs and listening to the message, but if you're really worshiping the Lord, it's going to cost you something. It's going to cost you in your life. There's going to be denials of things. It's going to cost you with your wallet and your pocketbook. You're going to say, God, I want to give of that which you've given to me. There are many people that probably sing the songs and come to the services regularly, but they really don't, they don't worship the Lord in this aspect that the Bible always points us to. The cost of worship after the call of worship. Third and finally, blessings come from giving to Christ. Blessings come from giving to Christ. We've seen purpose comes from worshiping Christ. Joy comes from discovering Christ. But blessings come from giving to Christ. So let me implore, ask you, have you given your life to Christ? We're a small group here today. Probably regular folks. Maybe some young people. But have you given your life to Christ? The Magi's pilgrimage brought them to the feet of Christ. And I am absolutely confident that they left changed men. 
because they had revelation. It brought them to Christ and they became obedient to that revelation and they went home a different way. They left changed men because they had a knowledge of who he was. Do you have a knowledge of who he is? Not just the babe in the manger, but the Savior. The Bible says, whoever seeks to save his own life will lose it. That's most of our world today. Whoever seeks to save his own life, live as long as you can, nothing wrong with that. Have as much as you can get, not necessarily anything wrong with that. But it goes on to say, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. Luke 17, 33. Who loses his life, Jesus is saying, in the cause of Christ, in the great plan of God for humanity and eternity, whoever gives himself in this great scenario, he doesn't lose his life, he gains his life, and he gains eternal reward. We're involved in a cause that's much bigger than any of us, that's for sure, or even in our culture or our nation. We're in the eternal cause. So give your life to Christ. Second, give your gifts to Christ. The Bible tells us they gave three things to Christ, and we're familiar with them. Gold, because he is the king who rules, and he's still ruling. He is the king who rules. Second, frankincense, because he is the priest who intercedes. The priests use frankincense in their offerings, in their symbolic of the prayers of God's people. Frankincense because Christ is the priest who intercedes, and the Bible says he's interceding for us today. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh, which is used in the embalming process. Myrrh because he is a savior who would die. We get that. They gave very, very appropriate gifts, which tells me they understood a lot more than maybe we would think they did. Maxwell White was a famous burglar in New York City, Long Island specifically, around the turn of the previous century, around the turn of the 19th century. The newspapers began to glamorize his daring thefts. The police were humiliated as he robbed the homes of some of the most well-known and wealthiest citizens of New York City. It was almost a status symbol to be robbed by Maxwell White. He visited your home because, after all, he only broke into the finest of homes and the wealthiest of his patrons. Finally, he was caught. He was sentenced to 99 years of prison. Remember, this was more than 100 years ago. After serving 33 years, he was released. And there were a few reporters that still remembered his exploits, and they came to interview him when he was paroled. They asked him various exploits, and one of them asked him specifically, Max, from whom did you steal the most? And after a moment of reflection, the aging bandit said this, I stole the most from myself. In other words, the best years of my life were stolen from me because of my actions. I stole the most from myself. We are the losers when we don't honor God with our gifts. We're the losers, not God, us. 
because it impacts our life now, but it really impacts our life in eternity. Let me ask you three questions and we close. Have you experienced the joy that comes from discovering Christ? If not, if you haven't discovered Christ or he hasn't discovered you, whichever way you want to say it, then allow us to help you, to introduce you to Jesus Christ, who is the joy of life. Second, does your life have purpose because you're a worshiper of Christ? I'm not asking and I'm not even relating to the fact that you come here on Sundays. Certainly, this is an integral part of worship. We get that. But are you a worshiper of Christ in the everyday experience of life because you turn to your Bible and you worship him in the morning or the evening on a regular basis, a daily basis? Are you a worshiper of Christ because purpose comes? Otherwise, you have no direction. You have no purpose. Your life has no meaning, we would say. And third, have you experienced the blessings that come from giving to Christ? I've regretted some money I have spent, believe me, in my life, and I'm a pretty tight spender. If you don't believe me, just ask my wife. But uh, uh, I, I don't come into this world naturally generous. I grew up in a large family room on a farm, and it was hard scrabble. Worked my an engineering degree and through my Bible degrees. And so I've always been tight. But I've spent some money on some things. I would say, I wish I could go back and have that money. That was a waste. That didn't really help anything. But I'll tell you what, I've never regretted, nor will I ever regret, the money I've given to God's work. I'll see that again. And it'll allow me to gain eternal dividends. I ask you, have you experienced the blessings that come from giving to Christ? Let's pray. Father, we ask that we would learn from the Magi. There's so many characters in the Bible and so many in the story surrounding the incarnation that have lessons, life lessons for us to learn from. May we rivet our attention to these people and the outcome of their life, and may we grow wiser as a result. May we become wise men and wise women. Help us today, Lord, as we recenter our lives on that which is eternal and that which is important. As we worship and we have to do on a regular basis, push you to the top of our life and the top of our focus when all so many other things crowd you out. Help us, Lord, as this is an ongoing process. You know for all of us, our frailties, our weaknesses, and our inclination to move away from that which is really important. So we commit it to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.